Hello and welcome back to another episode of Between the Bills. I'm Emily Rose Thorne, a journalist for Macon, Georgia, usually bringing you stories of reproductive rights activism here in the South. But we're in unprecedented times right now, so we're expanding our scope today. We'll be talking about COVID-19, the psychological impact of quarantine, who will be most affected by the economic fallout, and the perception of bodies as vessels for disease rather than as fellow humans. Our wonderful Pulp co-founder and editor, Katie Tandy, will read from her recent article, A Bodily Reckoning Amidst Coronavirus. We'll also hear from Carly Moore, an NYU writing professor and author of essay collection 16 Pills, young adult novel The Stalker Chronicles, and her most recent novel The Not Wives, which was nominated for a Lambda Literary Award in Bisexual Fiction. I also spoke with Aubrey Wallace, a small business owner and clinical herbalist living in between Michigan and the Netherlands, and Antonia Crane, a writer, activist, sex worker, and writing instructor. She's also the founder and director of Soldiers of Pole, a labor union by and for strippers based in California. We're not staying in the South for this episode because, well, this coronavirus isn't either. COVID-19 is the shortened name of the novel coronavirus first reported in Wuhan, China in November or December of 2019. Its official title is SARS-CoV-02, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. That's the virus that causes coronavirus disease 2019, which COVID-19 stands for. At the time that I'm bringing this episode to you, the United States has reported 140,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, with about 2,500 deaths. The world has dealt with coronaviruses before, some more deadly than COVID, but never one with such virality. That's at least in part due to COVID's ability to spread before hosts displace symptoms. The incubation period is anywhere between 2 to 14 days, a dismaying revelation that prompted epidemiologists to encourage intense social distancing. The Guardian reports that about 80% of people who get COVID-19 have a mild illness and can recover at home, but up to one in six can become seriously ill. On the other hand, some people are entirely asymptomatic and may never even know that they're a carrier. That's why states have encouraged or mandated some form of social distancing for everyone, whether or not they're showing symptoms, to try and prevent further spread. Of course we need to be social distancing, and we need to follow the guidelines that experts have given us to avoid interaction that isn't essential, but we also need to remember the humans behind the statistics and the warnings, and to see ourselves and others as more than just potential disease carriers. Here's Katie reading what she wrote about this perception and the potentially traumatic effects of quarantine. Quarantine. Despite all the introverts quietly driving a tremendous, if quiet, joy from this mandatory respite, is traumatic. It's predicated on trying to mitigate danger, but the very thing that will kill you is the very thing you're housed inside. Quarantine comes from the Italian quaranta giorni, 40 days, 
which in turn stems from the Venetian policy of keeping ships hailing from plague-ridden countries off its port to ensure no cases were aboard. United Christian Hospital psychiatrist Ivan Makwinchit says that many SARS patients developed PTSD as a result of being quarantined. Their bodies healed, but the mind continued to suffer. Here, the body and brain combine in a kind of haunted memory palace. The pain of once lost breath and the pain of loneliness drag their iron chains round and round the mind as mournful and noisome as Marley's ghost. Akiko Bush's book, How to Disappear, talks about all the different traits we imbue invisibility with, many of which are negative, even as every one of us has longed to disappear, to dissolve into the ether or prowl our earth unseen. Invisibility is often believed to be about transgression, she says, the ability to wrong, to get away with something, to cheat, lie, or steal. We emotionally anthropomorphize the disease. We take it personally. We're suddenly at war, and the body count rises. Not everyone has gone to war with their own bodies during this time. For some, moving their body, using it for what it does best, has been a way to escape from the uncertainty and fear, to ground us, to return, however briefly, to normalcy. That's true for Aubrey Wallace, a small business owner who lives in the Netherlands, but is trapped in Michigan due to the state's shelter-in-place order going into effect while she was visiting her parents there. She says that staying inside has actually made her more likely to exercise. I'm more apt to work out at home. Whereas before I kind of felt like, okay, I'm gonna every, every day or so, but now I actually feel like working out every day, especially if I'm starting to feel depressed or listless, or if, especially missing my partner and being far away from home, viewing my body as a way to uh, make myself feel better has been really helpful. I'm re relying a lot on yoga on YouTube Premium, along with things like Pop Sugar. I know this is funny, but Pop Sugar has a really awesome YouTube channel with high intensity workouts, and those high intensity workouts are super helpful with dealing with the feeling super duper isolated right now. Mental health experts have long touted the efficacy of exercise in reducing anxiety and stress. Harvard Medical School researchers explained in a 2018 article that aerobic exercise can affect your brain chemistry by reducing levels of adrenaline and cortisol, hormones which can cause stress, and elevating endorphins, which reduce perceived pain and improve mood. Yoga, in particular, forces you to breathe slowly, deeply, and regularly, which can help restore a sense of calm. We could all use a little more calm right now. In New York City, the epicenter of COVID in the United States, Writer, novelist, essayist, poet, and NYU writing professor Carly Moore is in lockdown with her 11-year-old, managing her anxiety the best she can. So, I'm lying on my couch. Um, I'm in, I'm not in quarantine, but I'm in a lockdown or social distancing, as is everybody in New York City, except for essential workers. Uh, I also have my period, which I think is important because I'm 47 and periods are rough and I don't want to have it anymore and also Pope cares about bodies so I thought I should say that I have a heating pad on uh, yeah a lot of people I know are having a lot of uptick in anxiety I know that I have had a lot a hard time sleeping lately and my panic attacks have returned at night um, which is not something I've had in like eight years 
I'm having a lot of nightmares. As if to add to the claustrophobia and fear, the U.S. response to COVID has been militarized. The New York National Guard has been deployed to stop the spread, doubling the number of members on duty to 2,200 this past weekend. More than 14,830 Air and Army National Guard troops have been mobilized across all U.S. states and territories. In Rhode Island, troops are going door-to-door, searching for New Yorkers who fled their state. Moore is disabled and takes medication. She says that disabled bodies may be more prepared for self-isolating measures than abled bodies in the face of this public health crisis. I have a rare neurological disorder, um, like one in two million people have it. It's called dopa-responsive dystonia, and I, I don't make enough dopamine, so I take synthetic dopamine. I do think that disabled people are particularly skilled at um, self-isolation and having to isolate or just because of the realities of um, people's, disabled people's lives. I think a lot of us spend a lot more time indoors anyway because we don't have access to certain things anyway. So I think we're kind of doing a good job as leaders during this. As people with disabilities have stepped up to lead during a crisis, it's also true that people with certain disabilities are more likely to experience complications from COVID. This is not to say that only disabled folks are at risk. That's untrue and implies that disabled bodies are less important, that they are other than able bodies, that COVID isn't scary because it will only come for those people. Nonetheless, people with heart disease, diabetes, chronic lung diseases, or cancer appear most likely to require critical care for COVID, and those with weakened immune systems most likely to contract it. Ability is not the only factor, however. Older folks, particularly those 60 or up, are at increased risk. In China, 80% of deaths were among people in that age group, according to the World Health Organization. That does not mean that everyone else is safe. A quarter of cases in Italy were among people aged 19 to 50, and in Spain, a third were under age 44. The U.S. has seen similar numbers so far. What's more, just because someone avoids death doesn't mean that they won't spend weeks in the hospital. And as resources become increasingly sparse, someone who may have required several weeks of care may no longer be able to get that and may suffer a far worse outcome. Outside of the emotional, psychological, and physical impacts of a global pandemic, we've also got an economy crashing harder and faster than it did in the 2008 recession. For many young people, this is the first time we've seen an economic catastrophe. Personally, I turned 9 years old in late 2008 and had little awareness of what was happening. Most of my generation doesn't even remember 9-11 or its fallout with any clarity. Other pandemics, such as SARS and H1N1, are but a distant memory and neither caused an economic disaster as dramatic as the one we may be in for as a result of COVID. Many people are already facing changes in their work situations and financial stability, or are seeing already existing challenges worsen. On March 26, the Department of Labor reported a record 3.3 million Americans applying for unemployment as businesses lay off non-essential workers. The previous record was 695,000 in October of 1982. Nearly every state and every industry has been affected, with service industries, hospitality and food service especially, being the hardest hit. Healthcare and social assistance, arts, entertainment and recreation, transportation and warehousing, and manufacturing industries have also been impacted. Additionally, thousands of workers at some of the largest companies in the world are now expected to carry out their duties from home. Even Pulp has gone remote. 
Aubrey Wallace is running her small business from home, although she says she's used to that. Her company is seeing a decline for now, but she's expecting to see an uptick in interest soon. I own a company called Dandelion Branding. We're a digital marketing company. So we help businesses with their, I guess, digital world, if you want to put it that way. The calls we have with clients, a lot of them are being canceled. We work with getting small businesses online. So people are showing a lot of interest. Right now is really, really important for people to, to move their businesses to online. But I think in these couple of weeks, what we're seeing is people are starting to take care of they're in crisis mode and need to be really taking care of the people around them and creating sort of a new normal. And that takes a couple of weeks to deal with it, especially people with kids having to stay home and finding a way to get back to work, figuring out what needs to happen for their business to move online. But I think in the coming weeks, we will see an increase in interest in our services of helping people get digital. And right now we are offering free calls and consultations. We waived all of our fees for helping people figure out how to get their business online. Back in New York, Carly Moore is working from home, holding Zoom meetings with her students. She says she's struggling to write during this time. I'm working from home um, and teaching my classes online and um, I'm not really writing right now. I mean, I am writing some Instagram poems. That's kind of what I can manage. If you want to check them out, they're at Fragmented Sky. I am being paid by the university still, so I'm okay. I'm trying to spread around some money, and I think everybody who can do that really should. While some workers are receiving paid leave, the majority are at least seeing decreases in income. Some are seeing total losses. On a personal note, my parents are small business owners who have operated two stores since 1995 and 1997 respectively, closing only on Thanksgiving and Christmas since they opened. For the first time, their doors are locked. The US government has announced plans for a $2 trillion stimulus package, the largest in modern history. According to the New York Times, the relief bill will offer assistance to tens of millions of American households and individuals, expand unemployment coverage, pause student loan payments, change retirement account rules, and more. Most adults will receive $1,200 with an additional $500 for every child aged 16 or under. College students under 24 who are claimed as a dependent on a tax return, however, will get nothing. The Times reported that checks are estimated to arrive within the next three weeks. However, America and the world has begun to rely on the gig economy more than ever in the past few years, and these gig workers are being intensely affected. Gig workers include rideshare and delivery drivers, performers, freelancers and writers, even Airbnb hosts. For the first time, a relief bill will offer aid to these gig workers. They'll have benefits calculated based on previous income and will be eligible for an additional weekly benefit, though the amount varies by state. One group of gig workers that you might not immediately think of? Sex workers. In the time of coronavirus, their job is positioned between the issue of bodies, of social distancing, and of the pre-existing stigma surrounding sex work that already made it difficult for them to receive benefits. Antonia Crane is the founder and director of stripper labor union Soldiers of Pole, 
which is working with sex workers facing unemployment to help them file for the benefits they're entitled to as gig workers. Here's Crane on how sex workers have been impacted so far in California. Buckle up. Uh, what I've noticed is that um, our clubs have shut down in California. They've been shut down now for about nine days. And from what I understand, that is uh, perilous right now. We don't know how it's going to turn out. And I've noticed that strippers are um, really banding together and helping one another. Also, we are helping strippers to apply for unemployment benefits for which they are eligible. So we are just busy right now trying to help people with our filings right now. And also our question right now is um, I've noticed that undocumented dancers from all over are wondering what is going to happen to them. And we're getting new information kind of every other minute right now. But what I do know from our um, union is that if you have a social security number, a green card, or pay any taxes whatsoever, uh, you are eligible for unemployment benefits. I've noticed that strippers are also resorting to cam work, which is not like a backup plan. There are people that have been doing that for years, and it's it's very annoying to have um, cam work be kind of dismissed and just to kind of have it be seen as a backup plan for dancers. Sex workers generally choose their niche and stick with that, and um, there is some overlap. However, it really just shows ignorance about the sex industry in general. I mean, dancers, I've been a stripper for 26 years, and I've also kind of segued into other areas of the sex industry, but I've never wanted to be recorded and been a porn entertainer, but a lot of my friends do that and are also dancers. Many sex workers don't want to do cam work. Um, they find it tedious or they have children and they don't have privacy or the skills to really get a cam business going um, for a variety of reasons. It's kind of like telling um, a contractor when business is slow that he should just learn how to make hammers because it's like the same thing and it's really, really different. I've also noticed in Oregon, uh, there are strippers who are delivering food and this scares the hell out of me. There's no way that it can be sanitary or safe. And I just fear that it's one of these makeshift money grabs that is exploitive and that strippers are going to pay the ultimate price for these kinds of things. Um, and it's only barely minimum wage. It's just a way to um, kind of fetishize strippers and send them out into the world to strangers' homes with food made in something that was a strip club five minutes ago just seems absolutely terrifying. Crane emphasized that above all, sex workers are just trying to survive. Everyone is just trying to survive. Like it or not, for better or for worse, COVID has launched the world into a pivotal moment. We're starting to see how the healthcare system, the economic system, and the political system we've utilized for so long have been stretched to their breaking points. We're seeing people begin to question whether those systems should be reinstated or revolutionized once this is over. For example, there are some places where social distancing is impossible. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, correctional facilities house large numbers of people with complex medical needs as well as older people, all together in facilities that are ill-equipped to handle even something as routine as seasonal influenza. Some states are already seeing the effects. Here's Katie. The body is prison, as enemy fire. A sweeping sickness of this magnitude is a recognition of our collective bodily weakness, our constant proximity to death. 
Our lack of bodily control, even as we tell it to walk forward, lie down, and compulsively wash itself with hot soap and Lysol. And of course, when we invert this strange dialogue, we find prisons, heaving cement and curled barbs of wire as a means of punishing criminalized bodies through isolation. Last Sunday, Harvey Weinstein tested positive for COVID-19 while in prison, which reminds me that we not only penalize bodies with social suspension, but by subjecting them to unsanitary conditions poised for the mass spreading of disease. The profound inhumanity of 10 million people incarcerated worldwide is further compounded by their forced physical vulnerability. Jail officials expect the number of infected inmates to rise exponentially. Bodies imprisoned by other bodies. As of March 30th, New York, Texas, Illinois, Louisiana, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, California, and more states reported confirmed cases and even deaths from COVID within their prison walls. Some states are considering releasing eligible inmates early to prevent further spread, but action has been slow, and rates of infection among staff and inmates alike continue to climb. From a more general healthcare standpoint, Carly Moore expressed frustrations with the way the federal government has responded to the crisis. I am lucky enough to have um, health care through my job, um, but I think everybody in this country should have free health care. I'm really angry about that all the time, but especially now. I'm also watching Donald Trump withhold ventilators and masks from states that he's angry at is really brutal. I don't know if I've ever been more angry at him, but you know, I've always been angry at him. It's just the latest wave of bullshit. $1,200 one time is a joke for people. Um, I think it's a slap in the face and I think it speaks to the structural institutional racism and classism and sexism of this country that that's what we would come up with to help people through this. I think there should be massive strikes. And Antonia Crane says that the American workforce is due for a reckoning. I think that one thing that I'm really concerned about today is the current occupant of the White House is completely dismissive of scientists and doctors who have seen many pandemics and are professional and, and well-known and well-respected in their fields. And um, he is talking about opening up uh, the workforce again and sending people back to work prematurely. And I think sending people to work prematurely specifically for sex workers is incredibly dangerous and irresponsible. And as we know, club owners and managers are only concerned with lining their pockets, exploiting strippers. And uh, this is an age old problem. And I think that this is an incredibly deadly decision. I hope that strippers can band together. I think that this is an opportunity actually for strippers as a workforce to band together and come up with a plan. Um, I think that we need a health and safety plan um, in order to look out for ourselves because club owners and managers have never looked out for us and they do not care. And so I think we need a list of demands and we need to refuse to work. We need to organize nationally. Forcing dancers to work during a pandemic is, um, is cruel and possibly deadly for not only them, but their families, their children, and for the world. Everything is sort of crystallizing in this moment in labor, and I think it's a really interesting time, um, particularly for sex workers and strippers. 
Uh, we're being asked to really think about labor and to think about what we want and what's fair and what's just and think about what our ideal workforce would look like. Um, I don't want to be too silver lining stripper on you, but I do think that it's an opportunity to step back and think about what our workforce is going to look like post-COVID-19. on waiting, on getting from one day to the next, on finding peace within our bodies. Aubrey Wallace offers this advice. I feel like the most important thing you can do right now is self-reflect, uh, take care of yourself first. You know, we put our oxygen masks on first and make sure that you're healthy before you try to help other people. Now is not a time to be a martyr. And we don't want to be in a situation like Italy where their health system is overrun and they don't have enough ventilators for people that truly, truly need it. For those of you who are in a position to help others, there are plenty of ways that you can support your communities right now. PBS recommends donating to or volunteering at your local food bank, as many food banks across the country have had volunteers cancel shifts while others are running out of essential stock. Some folks have visited food banks for the first time because their regular grocery stores are depleted. Organizations like Feed America allow you to search for food banks in your area, and many facilities are directing resources specifically to people affected by COVID. Similarly, you can find ways to help students who depend on school lunches in areas where public schools are closed. Consider contacting your local public school district about helping with preparation or distribution or getting involved with organized fundraising efforts. You can also support small businesses that may be forced to lay off employees or cut their hours due to lack of business. You can order takeout or delivery from restaurants, being sure to tip well. And if you order anything online, you can try to see if it can be sourced from an independent business. You can also support the folks who spoke to you today, who helped bring this podcast episode to you, and who shared a little bit of their lives with us today. Aubrey's small business, Dandelion Branding, is offered free consultations for other small businesses who want or need to expand online operations during this time. You can connect with them at dandelionbranding.com. Carly's published work is available for sale with links on her website, carlymore.com slash buymystuff. Try to buy from an independent bookseller if possible. And you can donate to, or otherwise engage with, Soldiers of Pole on their website and social media. Links to their sites and socials can be found in the show notes of this episode on Pulp's website. Hey boy, I see you looking at me, you better come over... And that's it for episode 6 of Between the Bills. I originally planned to bring you an episode about maternal and child health in the southeastern United States, but that was before we came face-to-face with COVID-19. I hope to bring you that episode in April, but I felt that this was too important to wait. If you're new to Between the Bills, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and online at Pulp Magazine at medium.com slash pulpmag, especially while you're stuck in quarantine. 
You can get a taste of our other content, like a weekly playlist, personal essays about sex, sexuality, and reproductive justice, and plenty of other stuff for and of the body to help you pass the time. If you love what you see, you can follow us on Medium, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's worth the squeeze.